When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Rosemary Butler, and I want you to stay and listen to Pantheon Podcasts. Hey guys, today on My Rock Moment, we have Barney Hoskins. Now, Barney is a celebrated author, rock journalist, as well as co-founder and editorial director of the online music journalism archive, Rock's Back Pages. Now, I'm an avid listener of his podcast, which is also called Rock's Back Pages, and I've read a number of his books and wouldn't be surprised if many of you listening have read his books as well. In fact, I often reference Waiting for the Sun, A Rock and Roll History of Los Angeles, and Hotel California, singer-songwriters and cocaine cowboys in the LA Canyons in the California Rock History College course I teach. So it's a treat to have him on today and hear firsthand about some of his works, um, the incredible music archive he's built, and some memorable interviews, of course, he's had along the way. Lots to get into, so let's get started. So, Barney, thank you for coming on My Rock Moment. Great pleasure to be here. Now, I've read a number of your books, and some of them have become um, my definitive go-tos when referencing any facts, you know, about a particular band or era. And no surprise, particularly Waiting for the Sun and Hotel California, which I think came right after that or a few years after that. Correct. Um, but your work is wonderful, and it's been a big help for me, especially in my teaching. So I'm excited to have you on. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I do want to dive into it um, because I did reference those books, and I want to dive into your time in L.A. You came out here in the early 80s. I can imagine, you know, that time out here, you know, spawned those books. But tell me a little bit about L.A. in the early 80s. So I first went to L.A. in, I think it was 1978, um, having been to New York for the first time the previous year. And so I was just kind of obsessed with, you know, America and um, places in America that I that I, you know, had kind of grown up on in a sense and music and movies and things that had come from, you know, obviously, particularly from L.A. So I just... I just had to get there. And so that was my introduction to uh, Los Angeles. And and then I ended up back there in, I think, 1982. Mm. Um, you know, just kind of uh, on, on the run from <laughs> sort of London and, uh, the, you know, the climate and uh, just the sort of grey, rainy dreariness of London. I think a lot of English people just, a lot of British people just sort of, they gravitate towards California and always have done going back to, you know, the early years of the 20th century, you know, and um, because it's just the polar opposite of our experience here. Of course. Climatically and culturally and... I loved the fact, just felt like a different planet to me and still does in many ways, you know, but I love that. So (laughs) for better or worse. Uh, Yeah. I mean, you know, um, LA in, in, in the early eighties was, I mean, it's so hard to, you know, I was just my perspective. I mean, I can't get really kind of definitive synoptic 
kind of appraisal of, of the LA scene. I mean, I intersected with very all kinds of different aspects of it, you know, um, you know, from Black Flag to Donna Summer, you know, and kind of all points in between. You know, I interviewed Donna Summer as she was preparing to go on the Merv Griffin show. And that was a, just a fantastic LA experience. And then, you know, I drove down to Hermosa Beach to SST Records interview the the whole of Black Flag, all of them sitting there. Um, and so that was like the opposite of talking to Donna Summer in the green room of the Merv Griffin show, right? So I mean, it was all LA, you know, it was all See, LA. <laughs> yeah, and that's, and that's why I asked because, you know, to come out to LA you know, as a Brit, yes, it, there's mm. a little bit of a culture shock and there's a lot to see. I mean, there's a culture shock coming from the Midwest out here, you know, yeah. um, we are our own entity, but these two zeitgeists that happened in the 60s, you know, music wise in the 60s and then in the 80s, that must have been something to see because by 1982, you know, that burgeoning kind of metal scene was in full force. We also had the subsequent, and you know, you you referenced it, the subsequent punk scene happening as well on the beach. There was so much going on. So yeah. I can imagine that as a journalist, as an author, there was a lot of fodder for you. Yeah, there was. I mean, I would say that the the, the yeah, the kind of peak period of 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 hair metal um didn't occur probably to in my memory didn't occur to like return to London at the end of 1983. Mm. So my, that's really my memories of seeing a lot of punk shows. Um, I saw a few up in San Francisco where I went initially. I remember down in LA and suburban, you know, suburban Los Angeles, dri you know, driving for miles to see like <laughs> punk shows. I know. Yeah. And, but I loved it because, you know, it just, it didn't conform to, uh the sort of cliches of what you know southern california was supposed to be about it seemed so so antithetical such a kick in the face to all of that you know and and of course there was a lot of snobbery towards towards that scene because it was like you know it was legitimate to be uh in a punk band in grimy london or uh uh, uh squalid lower east side new york but somehow you didn't have a right to form a punk band if you'd grown up in a in a suburb of California, you know. But it but it made perfect sense to me, um, just as um, you know, gangster rap made perfect sense to me. In terms of Los Angeles and your time there, I'm assuming that's what inspired you to write Waiting for the Sun. And if anybody hasn't read it or, you know, whoever, I'm sure a lot of my listeners have. It's the definitive history of L.A. music. Um, and there's a lot in there. And I wouldn't even know where to begin to start writing a book like that. So just as, you know, I guess for my own edification, how do you even start with something like that? You get a massive city like LA and, you know, arguably the music started a hundred years ago. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I kind of look back and think, how the hell did I do that? I, mean, <laughs> I don't know whether it's definitive or not. It's very kind of you to say that. I mean, I think there's lots of, there's lots of mistakes in it. There's lots of things that I got wrong. Um, but that's, that kind of speaks to the fact that, you know, there was no Google. There was, there were, there were only like libraries and books an old magazine right. and you know and then interviews that you did and you kind of somehow cobbled all that together and tried to, to tell a story you know um it was a it was a huge amount of 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 work i mean particularly going back into the kind of 40s and 50s and you know the jazz era because i know really nothing about jazz um so and there weren't and of course there weren't that many people to interview a lot of them had died already by that point but i i got to a few there were some great books written there were things to draw on um the rhythm and blues era and and so forth i mean i just i found 
it's it's like LA was a kind of living musical organism in a way, you know. And I and I found it I found it um, uh, just sort of irresistible, really, as a, as a subject matter, and just every, the kind of what you might call the mythography of Los Angeles. There's so many songs about California and LA, and it's be, just become this kind of you know, pop cultural landscape of the mind for the rest of the planet. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't really know where where that sits now. But when I kind of came into it, and when I first went there, that's how I thought of it. Sure, there's a yeah. lot to cover in this city, um, and that's why I find it so fascinating. And I found the book so fascinating. Now, were there in particular? I'm sure you you did countless interviews for that book. Were there any that really stood out to you that were just gems? There were there were lots. There were lots of really interesting and entertaining um, people, you know, uh, for sure. Uh, I mean, I, I, I <laughs> is it a good idea even to mention the name Kim Fowley? Probably not. <laughs> it's not going to reflect well on, on, on me or anyone else. But I have to say that uh, Fowley was um, a, a, a fascinating interview, and he had he had thought so so much and so deeply about what LA meant you know he was a movie brat he had a brilliant mind he was a scurrilous individual I people like him were really interesting in they had amazing brains and amazing recall and they had this you know this this sort of ability to see the whole story, you know, you know, then again, you know, Van Dyke Parks, Randy Neiman, like that were, were, were fascinating about, about Los Angeles. Either they'd grown up there or they'd come there. Um, as someone said, they'd come there to, to be Californians. That whole idea of, you know, everyone coming to the Canyon, young girls are coming to the Canyon. Yeah. The Eagles are coming to the Canyon and everyone's coming from New York or Texas or Michigan and coming to LA in order to become Californians. That's that, that, that was such a sort of central thread of the thing. Yeah. Well, one of the chapters you said that you basically just expanded and you use that to create the blueprint for hotel uh, California, which was all about the canyons, which has made such a resurgence right now. I mean, I say right now, over the last, you know, seven years or whatever it is, there is so much of a focus on that time, that place, that music, you know, and this book that you wrote came out in 2005. Yes, yes. Well, you're absolutely right. It was just one of those moments when, I don't know, I was kind of um, sitting around in, you know, whenever it was, 2002, thinking, you know, I need to do another book. I had started Rocks Back Pages, so that was underway, but it yeah. wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't making a living from that at that point. And um, so I knew I rather urgently had to find another subject. And it just sort of came to me that no one had, had really written about, you know, the canyon slash asylum records era that stable of very interconnected quite you know quite incestuous stable of artists you know that it came together under the aegis of like david geffen and elliot roberts and it was warner reprise and it was asylum it was Joni in the canyon it was how do you get from Joni turning up with elliot roberts in 1967 signing to reprise you know, how did that lead to the Eagles becoming like the biggest band in America, like mm -hmm. eight years later, right? That was, so it just hit me. This is, that's the story. Because they, they're all part of the same cast. of. They're all in the same drama. They're all, they're all, that's the cast of characters and they all knew each other and they all had relationships with each other and they all, you know, did drugs together and they all lived up, up in the, up in the hills and, I just thought, yeah, we sort of know about this, but but no one's written a book about specifically that. So, so that was the project, you know, and um, and I had a I had an absolute ball doing it. I really I really enjoyed it. You know, it was a celebration of, you know, laid back mellowness and everything that we had been taught to despise in mm. the punk rock years. You know, but the, but so many of us secretly, of course, were uh, loved. And absolutely loved that music, but you couldn't, you know. I remember I went to see Little Feet at the Rainbow in London in 1975 oh. when I was like 15 years old, you know. And 
within probably like a couple of years, you couldn't really tell people that you loved Little Feet because because it was all, you know, it was it was all Clash and Sex Pistols and the Dam by then, you know. And and um, I mean, not that I ever kept really that quiet about loving Little Feet, Little Feet or Steely Dan or Joni Mitchell because it seems seems to me that the records they made will will outlast most of the of the records that the punk bands made you know um just yeah. for sheer musicality they're just so rich and you know let's just let's just get real here you know uh, <laughs> i think the hissing of summer lawns is worth you know 25 anarchy in the uk so i think most people kind of back to you know you, you come back to and you just realize how extraordinary that music was well and music is a mood too yeah. I don't feel like listening to punk 24 hours a day. I'm not in no. that mood. No. <laughs> you know? no. I'd be worried about you if you were. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you were able to get all the greats, you know, like David Crosby, you know, rest his soul. And um, I know that you were able to, you know, obviously get Joni later on when you did Joni Anthology. But all those people were still around. Glenn yeah. Fry, all of yeah. them were still there. Yeah, I mean, there, there were people I, I, I never got to talk to, um, but I had done some interviews um, uh, before I even set, set out down this road. I'd done interviews with Joni and I had done into I'd done an interview with Joni. I'd done an interview with Jackson Brown. I'd interviewed Randy Newman, you know, so there were people like that that I had that I had talked to. Um, I never did speak to Crosby and after Hotel California came out, he refused to speak to me for a separate interview because uh, he felt he'd been de depicted so unfairly in the book. So, and the Eagles just never talked to anyone at that point. So, you know, there were people I didn't get to, but um, I got to most of the people. And I, in the end, I got to David Geffen, you know, who was kind of the biggest, I'd interviewed Elliot Roberts um, a couple of times, but Geffen was hard to get to. He's probably easier to get to now, but I'm, I made one last appeal to him and I listed all the people I had by that point spoken to. And, you know, he then went, you know, okay, I'll speak to you, you know, because I think he just felt, what, he probably felt in a slightly paranoid way, what are they all going to be saying about me? And I better at least have my own say. Yeah. So, so I did do, I mean, it was rather a bland interview in the end, but it was important to have his voice in there and um you know Len Len Lenny Warrenker you know um mm -hmm. people like that so so behind the scenes people that you know so, some of your listeners are not necessarily going to know know their names but they were the people kind of pushing the buttons and making making the decisions and signing the acts and they're you know very important to me mm -hmm. yeah. yeah yeah in terms of telling the story yeah I would love to have interviewed Lowell George, but you know, as you know, yeah. he was he, he he died before I started writing uh, right. at all. So you know that there's and Judy Sill, I would love to have killed. I would have killed to interview Judy Sill, who was the great discovery for me, um, really at that time. You know, um, I hadn't really heard her before I started researching Hotel California. And by the time I'd finished it, I kind of thought, you know, she's the great unsung genius of this whole scene. And um, I still think she she is really. She was maybe greater than 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 all of them in some ways. Um, so uh, I'm really pleased that she's been so, you know, widely rediscovered. Yeah. 
I'm going to switch gears here. Let's go back. Let's go back to London when you were younger, even starting this whole career. Was there a particular band or artist that really did it for you? And you thought, you know what? I think I'm going to pursue a career in writing. Music, music journalism specifically. Yeah, I I would say... So, I mean, my very first kind of pop idol was Mark Bolan. Um, so that was that was the beginning of obsessive pop fandom, really, for me, was seeing Mark Bolan on top of the pops and then just becoming kind of a glam rock maniac. It was T-Rex, it was Bowie, it was Slade. It was, I put all those singles and, and I wrote a little book about glam years later. Um, but what happened quite quickly after that was... Um, you know, there were two or three things that happened that just got me into um, a slightly older age group of music in terms of um, American. I mean, I would say I went from kind of, you know, androgynous British boys like Mark Bowen and David Bowie to uh, American guys with facial hair in the space of about a year. <laughs> and suddenly it was really all about, you know, it was it was all about uh the West Coast, and it was all about, you know, it was about the Grateful Dead and the Allman Brothers. And particularly for me, it was about the band. So mm-hmm. I bought a copy of Rock of Ages. Um, for some reason, I don't even know why, I'd never even heard the band, but I knew somehow they were associated with, they played Watkins Glen with the Dead and the Almonds. And I just wanted to know more about who the hell they were. And I bought Rock of Ages. And that was the beginning of just a lifelong love affair that, that uh, yeah, well, that has never ended. And um, they became, they meant much more to me very quickly than either the Dead or the Almonds or any of the other bands of that era. Um, and so I ended up writing a book about the band and then I ended up, you know, years after that, writing a book about about the town that they adopted as their own, uh, which was kind of like the East Coast equivalent of um, uh, of Hotel California. Uh, so it was at Woodstock, New York. So that was really, really important. Um, and but I think what so what got me into writing about music was I. As I was, um, let me try and remember the time frame. When I was at university, I just, I started writing a book about about music, about kind of the idea of pop music. I was really interested in, you know, I was interested in everything from the Brill Building to um, Motown. It was just this, this sort of slightly daft thesis about what pop meant, you know, Warhol the Brill Building, New York in the 60s, you name it. And and so I, I started writing this book and I went to New York in 79, late 79. And I bought just every like music book I could find at Strand Books. And I went to the Library of Performing Arts. And I just, this was a book that never got written, by the way, but it led circuitously to me going back to London and uh, starting to write for Melody Maker. And then I went to NME and then I then my career was sort of underway sometime, I suppose, in 1980 into 81. I was I was writing for, for NME, um, I suppose, at the age of about I mean, I was probably 20, 21, 22. And I was writing for NME and suddenly I was just having to go and see all these bands and I was learning about how great joy division were and you know and all and i'm you know and then all of a sudden i was writing about you know echo and the bunny man and you two and all this kind of stuff and um what a time to be there yeah i mean it was it was i particularly remember in 1981 as a great as a great time musically in london there were just lots of great indie labels and great indie bands and just every week there seemed to be these classic little singles coming out. And I loved all of that. You know, I really did. Um, um, and, and then, but just a bit later, I sort of, I still kind of really was living in the past in my head. And I just, and I, and I kind of was just more interested in what had happened than one than what was happening. I wanted to know more about, um, you know, for example, I wanted to just know more about soul music and Southern soul music. That became a particular passion for a few years. And that was the subject of my first book. Right. So my very first trip 
accurate was was to the American South in like 1985. Um, when I after I got back from LA, I just I became obsessed with places like Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and Macon, Georgia, and I wanted to know all about that. I mean, I think there's a pattern if you look at my. I mean, I'm, I'm just very very interested in scenes in places yes. at particular times. Why do they become so important? How do all these people end up there? And how does how does the scene you know uh, develop? How does it grow? Why does it put down roots there? And, and and why do all these incredible records come out of this place at that time? You know, and I think that's something that I find more interesting in a way than just looking at the story of like one band or one artist. You know, I, because I always say, this isn't Brian Eno has a, has a word for this, which is seniors. He says that genius is overrated and seniors, as, as in a scene, um, is underrated, you know, because it's always, it's always, music is always about more than like some, you know, self-appointed auteurist genius. It's always about, you know, uh, combinations of people uh, contributing very different things. And that's that's what produces extraordinary moments and extraordinary, you know, music, I think. Hey, guys, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. All right, let's get back to the interview.
And in terms of scenes, you mentioned your book just peripherally, uh, Small Town Talk with Woodstock. And it sounds like you really do immerse yourself in those scenes when you're about to write a book. So you headed to Woodstock? Well, I actually, yeah, I actually ended up living, I mean, it's an odd thing, but I lived there uh, for four years in the 90s. Um, you know, my youngest son was born, uh, was born there. Um, yeah, and, um, but it didn't occur to me to write a book about the place until like 10 years later. I don't know why not, it just didn't. It didn't really recur occur to me to write, I'm a bit slow on the uptake, I think. It didn't really recur to me to write a book about California until, you know, 10 years after I'd lived there. Um, I think you maybe just need the kind of distance. You need to step back from somewhere and then you suddenly kind of see it from, from a distance again. And um, it becomes much more compiling. Yeah. So why did you go to Woodstock if it wasn't to... I, I I wanted to I just wanted to live on the east coast of America for a while. Um, so um, I was working for Mojo in London, and I basically said, "Look, you know, do, do is there any chance that I could work as a kind of U.S. correspondent um, in in America?" Um, and my editor, who was actually you know a, a good friend of mine said yes so he okayed that and they put me on a retainer and you know I did a bunch of stories for Mojo there and wrote for other wrote for American publications as well and um you know to some extent yeah I did immerse myself in the Woodstock scene which was at a pretty low ebb at that point is is the honest truth it was in a pretty sad state and it kind of recovered a bit, but you know, the guys who'd been in the band and so forth were all a bit on their uppers. They were not in great shape, you know, and the like the you know, the music scene was reduced to like a cut. So there wasn't a whole lot going on. And maybe that's why I didn't, I didn't think, oh, I've got to write a book about this place. I did do some interviews with people there that, that later I revisited for Small Town Talk. But again, it was really only have a long later I mean it was probably again 10 years or so after that more more probably yeah 10 plus years later that I that it just hit me that there, there was a uh, there was a kind of east coast equivalent to Hotel California to be written I mean I've often joked that small town talk is um, you know, it's Hotel California with pine trees and snow, you know, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to palm trees and, and sand, you know, because it's not so different, even though Woodstock is a really tiny place. But if you think of Laurel Canyon as this kind of sort of <laughs> quite small, rustic like community little, yeah. in the middle of a huge sprawling city, it's not, it's, there are parallels there. And, you know, you've got the same combination of, um, you know, just kind of brilliant, messed up, fascinating people who are, you know, misbehaving but making incredible music. Um, and I mean, I think there was there was a, there was a sort of American aspect to all this. Of course, um, you know, and that's been just part of my obsession with America. Um, you know, which I, you know, I'm sad to say I don't feel as strongly now because of what's happening to your country um, that I just find so frightening and um, abhorrent, you know, that it's, it's kind of like my love of a love affair with America is, is sort of um, dwindling a bit. I mean, look, I, I love so many things about kind of American music. I mean, I love, I love a lot of country music, but anyway, you see, you, you understand what I'm saying. I, 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 I am a real um, devotee of, I guess the American dream, Americana, you know, guys with beards and fiddles and banjos and all that <laughs> stuff. What the band represented for me, you know. Um, and but you know, I, I if I was doing what I was doing back in those days and like driving through the American South, you know, it would be very different now because I wouldn't know what the hell you know, to expect from people, you know, um, that would be very dismaying. 
Um, and that's not just in the American South, of course it isn't, you know, I'm well, I'm well aware of that, you know. Um, because, I mean, you know, I think it's relevant. I'm not, this isn't just gratuitous because it ties in with what America has meant to me over sure. many, many years. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I understand that. There's even a nostalgia that I have and a time that I long for that no longer exists. And, you know, mm -hmm. I'm here in the heart of Los Angeles and I've seen a lot, especially in the last just three years. And the city's different. The country is different. Um, and so I think it makes even going back to these times and places that much more comforting. I want to talk about Rock's Back Pages. Yes, you've got the podcast, which is so great. Um, anybody who listens to my podcast, oh my gosh, you have to listen to Rock's Back Pages. But I know that the impetus for that, you know, was Rock's Back Pages that you founded in 2000, which is the largest online database of pop music writing in the world. What was, what even started that? You, you being a, you know, a journalist for decades at that point, thinking, okay, we need one central hub for all these great interviews, music-based interviews that people can access. What an undertaking. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where you say, if I'd known um, <laughs> how much right. I'd, you know, I'd never, I'd never done it. Right. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, all this time later, obviously I'm really glad that we don't, and it, you know, it, it, it's a success story um, on a, on a, in a modest level, but I mean, it was really, it was really a matter of timing. I came back to London from Woodstock, from New York, Woodstock, New York <clears throat> in late 1999. And it just happened to be that kind of dot-com boom. You know, it was all kind of happening. Everyone. Yep having ideas for for um you know the digital revolution for new media for the internet the, the information superhighway all of this stuff everybody was coming up with, with 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 ideas um and of course you know most of them like floundered and founded um you know mine was just a little a fairly kind of humble idea of um, it was an opportunity to to create a sort of virtual library to to digitize um, a lot of incredible content from the best music publications and writers. So we just started. I happen to know one guy who built websites um, for the BBC, Mark Pringle, who I still work with, and we 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 got rolling. Um, like 2000 and um with a handful of writers really you know i mean i think probably about 25 writers half of them in the uk and half of them in the us I mean, it was so hard to work out a kind of business model that might actually sustain something like that and it was really the academic side of things that that kept that, that that's really as what kept us afloat mm -hmm. uh, as it happens it, and it couldn't have augured really any better harvard reached out to us at some point i don't know whether it was 2003 four or five something like that and asked if we offered you know group subscriptions for an, an entire institution and it had really, I mean, we knew nothing about the way things like, I mean, it was very early days in terms sure. of, kind of databases and things. So, you know, um, it really was still like the stone age for the internet and online, online databases. So, but Harvard was like our first, you know, institutional wow. customer. And it was kind of like, okay, well, if Harvard likes us and wants, wants a group, wants a, a, a subscription for all of its students to access if they want to, you know, that's probably where we need to go rather than sort of thinking that individual subscriptions were ever going to pay. We also license and syndicate and we um, we've done books. We, you know, we, 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 we do a bit of everything, but most of the revenue comes in from universities and some public libraries. And we just keep trying to build that really, you know, 
that's the most solid kind of market for us. Um, and in the meantime, we just keep adding content to RVP. We keep adding writers. We have over 800 writers now. We're always trying to kind of fill gaps. We're always trying to, um, you know, get more articles about, uh, you know, genres that are not particularly well covered. You know, we have a fair amount of kind of hip hop and stuff. And it's a very, very broad church. You know, there's no... I mean, we called it Rocks Back Pages. We probably wouldn't call it like that now if we were starting. It, it kind of limits it in some people's eyes, but we really try to, I think we made, we try to make very clear that it is, it's kind of everything, you know, mm -hmm. it's everything really except classical music. And, and the podcast is now five years old and that's, you know, we've, we've really enjoyed doing that. I mean, it has, we didn't want it to become the tail that wagged the dog. Um, and it hasn't been we prepare for every episode um and um we've had some you know just some i think we've been really really fortunate with the guests that we've had on you know um there's been there's been a good real good mix of people i hope it's entertaining and um informative you know that's that's well i listen and i find it entertaining and informative and i love the fact that you incorporate some old interviews into the uh, into the fabric of the each episode, which is so cool. You know, you jump to some old audio from like 1973 or whatever it yeah. was, and you hear that person's voice who might not be here anymore, which is so yeah. great. I love yeah, it. It's a weird thing, isn't it? Because it's like because I I listen to the thing uh, the morning after you know it the it's finished and it's been edited and it's uploaded. And it always strikes me that it's kind of so you're hearing these voices and then you're suddenly hearing this voice that belongs to someone who's not even here anymore, but it's another voice in the episode. And there's something really, um, it always kind of catches me out in a way. And I really love it. Oh yeah, most definitely. And you know, I mean, I I was so impressed by it because I thought this is, a calm, this is history right here. And I think there's something to be said for being a, a journalist. It's that, you're capturing a moment in time with these people. You're getting a one-on-one -on -one interview with somebody who may not be here next year, you know, who lived these times, who has these memories. And a lot of this stuff is just sitting in their heads. And that's what I always loved about journalism. It was why I started the podcast, because I just wanted to be able to have conversations with people, uh, especially with California Rock, the people that were pillars of the community back in, 60, in the 60s yeah. or the 70s. And maybe they weren't talking to people as much anymore. Maybe their perspective on things that happened has changed, you know? So getting to sit down with them and talk to them and relive those moments. And that history, again, to me, is priceless. And then having it for posterity forever, as long as the cloud exists or I don't lose them. <laughs> You know, you talk about history. In the end, it is music history. You know, that's that's what category we're in. That's what we're about. And I think, you know, what I would say is that, in a way, the history of popular music is now almost like a kind of a discrete sort of historical period. You know, I don't know where we're at with the evolution of popular music. And I'm too old to really keep up with it. And I don't, I don't, <laughs> I, don't, I. <laughs> I don't, I don't care that much. You know, just, I have, I have more than enough music that I'm passionate about to listen to. So I'm not, I'm not just constantly feeling like I have to keep up with everything and, and other people to do that. I will listen to new, new bands and new artists. And if something catches my ears and then, then wonderful, I'm, all, I'm always open to, to hearing new stuff. But I do think that, you know, I, I think that in a sense, what began, you know, wherever the actual Big Bang origin moment is, and you can you can date it wherever you like, but for argument's sake, what began, you know, at Sun Records in Memphis in the 50s, you know, I think I think that that sort of period probably has come to an end. 
Um, in the same, you know, I think that I don't know where it ended. God knows. I mean, did it end with the death of you know with, of, of Kurt Cobain? Where, where where did where did it end? Um, you know, but I think that what music meant for several decades as a properly countercultural expression, uh, a tribal um, movement, whatever the genre was, I just don't think that it's the same. I mean, people still go to gigs in their thousands, hundreds of thousands, people still listen to music. That's never going to change. Um, but I think that popular music, in a sense, has been subsumed into what you might call kind of general entertainment culture. That the, the sort of the big bang has sort of died out a bit. And I just don't think there will ever be, you know, will there ever be another Elvis? Will there ever be a, another Mick Jagger? Will there ever be another, you know, uh, Johnny Rotten, Kurt Cobain? Um, will there be an another Prince? I don't know. Will it be these revolutionary um, individuals who change the course of kind of entertainment? You know, probably not. Probably not. Because I think it's just... It's just kind of part of the cultural furniture now. It'd be very, very difficult to do something that would genuinely shock anybody anymore. Right. I think the world is sort of unshockable, you know. Um, I mean, not that you can't do things that are genuinely shocking. You know, the Sex Pistols swearing on, you know, the evening news. I mean, most people's response would be, would be so what? Yeah. Really, you know who cares? Who cares, right? You know. So I think, I think, um, I think that's the point. I think the, the the shock of the near is really not. It's very difficult to shock, and um, it doesn't mean that for a thirteen year old going to see, you know, know, who the hell it would be. I don't know what a kind of contemporary example would be that would that would be analogous to the first gigs that I went to see, you know. And I'm, I'm not disputing that it's going to be thrilling for them. Yeah. You know, in a way that it can't be for me. Um, no, like a Taylor but, Swift or a Harry Styles. I mean, yeah. those it's are like, their Bowies and yes, you know, yes, yes. their um, Linda Ronstadt's and, and whatnot. Um, yeah, and it's, exactly. it's interesting to see. But I think back then, coming out of the 1950s Father's Knows Best era, there was a lot of room to shock people. And then you had very few channels on which to do it, right? So you knew that you yeah. were going to garner a big audience. Yeah. These days, nothing is sacred, and you've got fifty thousand different channels in which to disperse your exactly. message. Your it's art. everywhere; it's ubiquitous, you know. And exactly. I mean, it's such a cliche to say it, but when I was a teenager, it was basically all you really had was um, like the enemy or and or the other weeklies here. That that, that was it. That was just the, the only real source of information or opinion. And you had Top of the Pops on a Thursday night and you might watch the old grey whistle test, you know, and that mm -hmm. really was it. Mm -hmm. There was nothing else. Um, and so everybody flocked to those sources and you felt like you were part of a tribe or a community of you know, people who, who, who were really obsessive about that stuff. I've got one more question for you. Sure, sure. And just having interviewed all these people, whether it's for the various publications or for your books, were there any moments, given that this is my rock moment, that stood out to you, that you got that interview and you thought, this is an absolute gem, this is absolute gold, they were so forthcoming with me, or you know, they surprised you and it was absolute pandemonium and horrible. I don't know. <laughs> um. I, I don't know that there's any one moment that 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 would um 
that would stand like head and shoulders above any other. You know, there have been certainly some very notable encounters that mm-hmm. I have that I have had and enjoyed enormously um, and some kind of slightly and some bizarre ones. I mean, I'm always very grateful that I got to sit in a room with Prince uh, oh. for an hour uh, at, with just me and Prince sitting in a room. I still sometimes have to pinch myself uh, in disbelief that that actually happened. And I, and he wouldn't allow you to record anything. So um, I don't have any, um, hard evidence <laughs> that I was in a room with Prince for an hour. I wish I did. I was so tempted to take in an illicit like recorder. And but I figured if he think if he knew he he if anyone would have a sixth sense that you were yeah, recording, you know? Like, yeah. And it just wasn't worth the risk. Oh anyway. God, but how then, do you even you're just taking copious notes? It's so difficult. I mean I always thought, you know, yeah, it was a strange one because it's like you know, he didn't like journalists. He felt he was misrepresented by the press. But then, you know, if you're not allowing the, 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 the interviewer to record the conversation, you know, how on earth do you expect something accurate to come out of that? You know, I don't have shorthand and I was just scribbling madly. And it certainly was not going to be 100% accurate representation of what he said. So it seemed you know, slightly counterproductive to me, but that was all part of just Prince's eccentricity. It was still, you know, an extraordinary thing for me. I mean, I think he was the single most brilliant musician really of the last sort of 30, 40 years. Um, If I had to nominate one like genius auteur figure, I think it would probably have to be him. Who else? I would just probably say some of the interviews I've enjoyed most, the people I've enjoyed most enjoyed talking to would be would be like uh, the aforementioned Randy Newman, such a delight to interview. Uh, Robert Plant, I've interviewed oh. uh, two or three times. Tom yeah. Waits, who I wrote a book about, um, just a, a, you know, again one of one of the great auteurs i mean really someone you would have to say is like a major artist i mean Joni was a was a joy to speak to i was caught she? her in a very good moment you know she hadn't done an interview well, she said she hadn't done an interview for like three or four years it was like the beginning of the uh the interviews she was doing for turbulent indigo and she was you know in a, in a very good place and very very ebullient and effervescent and 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 uh, yeah and a happy talk about somebody that didn't have the best relationship with the press at times no exactly you know but i mean you know genuinely again just uh you mentioned linda ronstadt earlier great interview i don't revere her as highly as i revere joni but she was an extraordinarily brilliant woman with a brilliant mind so um, a fascinating person to talk to you know, and then, like anyone will tell you, then there was Lou Reed, you know, who was who was, oh. not, who was every journalist's nightmare. So I did, did a couple. Really? Well, he just, he really enjoyed, he really enjoyed um, uh, tormenting particularly British journalists who he reserved a particular scorn for. Um, so, you know, I was well warned um, that he was going to be withering and difficult. But I, but I, I kind of, I jumped over the relevant hoops and I just, I let him talk about um, amplifiers for like 45 minutes until he couldn't think of anything else to say about them. And then, you know, um, then we got to the good stuff. And and actually he then became very open and helpful and uh, and answered questions about, you know, rock and roll animal and, and so forth. And it was, and it was really good. I did get a great interview with him after that. I had to ask, I mean, you in a room with so many of these musical greats and really understanding the difference between a person who's a musician and a person Person who's a star. I mean, I've never been interested in fame uh, for fame's sake. Not that I'm immune to it. I can be as starstruck as as anyone, but I tend, you know, I tend only really to be starstruck by people who who deserve to be famous. <laughs> You're right. Um, I mean, I I was when Rob Dickens was on our podcast. 
Um, he was talking about Madonna, and I mentioned that I had interviewed Madonna when she first came over to the UK when he was the head of her record company, and he was being very funny about Madonna. I mean, he, he said, you know, he said, he said, most people I've worked with in music, you know, they start out really nice, and then when they become famous, they're a total nightmare. You know, they just change and they usually become a nightmare. Uh, the difference with Madonna is that she was a nightmare to start with. And she's still <laughs> a nightmare. Uh, I mean, he said it affectionately, but it was like, you know, I mean, she was someone who I have to say when I interviewed her in London in, uh, I guess it was 1983, maybe her first trip to London. You know, she was a no, nobody knew the, who the hell she was, you know. Yeah, 83. Um, mm. Yeah, you know, she'd. I don't think she'd even have a, had a hit. Holiday was the next single, right? So Holiday was come out. But she behaved like she was a superstar, you know. I mean, and I said to Rob, you know, I had on my heart, I found her self-belief terrifying. <laughs> I've never met anyone who just was so like, she was almost sociopathically certain of her greatness. And I couldn't really see there was much to build that on, you know. I mean, at that point, right? I mean, you know, and I really still don't think you could ever compare her to someone like Prince or even Michael Jackson, you know. Um, I, I really don't. But I do think she has managed and, and planned and plotted her career very brilliantly. And she's, you know, she's very canny. And But I, she's just not someone who I was in any way awestruck by and wouldn't really be now I don't think I'm not saying she's just famous for being famous she really isn't she's made some great records but I don't think she's a particularly great singer I don't think she's a particularly great songwriter I don't think she's a particularly great dancer but somehow she manages to pull all those things into one kind of product which which you know I'm not going to knock it you know um, no no, it was a very enticing package in the early 80s. Every girl was just, I mean, yeah. they were buying into that that yeah. attitude that you saw that you found terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't think she had a distinctive artistic character that you would say, wow, you know, like Prince. But you go back to shocking people, right? And she was able to do that. And she had the outlets to do it. And she, did, she did shock. You're right. She did shock. And she took great, she she took great delight in doing that. You could still do that in the eighties. You could still do that as a woman. As a woman, you certainly could. Yeah, yeah, completely. You could. You could you she could, did it. Yeah, got to hand it to her. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. great. Cool. Arnie, this has been so fun. I mean, you're just a wealth of knowledge, and I could talk to you all day. I did have a long. I'm certainly a wealth of opinion. I know from a wealth of knowledge. Um, everybody's a wealth of opinion you know <laughs> but I mean you've done some great work um and I'm going to put you know links to the books and the books we reference and rocks backs pages all of that in the show notes so people can check them out thank you so much it's been really really nice speaking with you big thank you again to Barney for coming on My Rock Moment. And guys, I would recommend any of his books. So a link to his website where you can find a list of his books and more information on Rock's Back Pages, both the archive and the podcast, are in the show notes. Thank you again for listening. If you haven't already, please rate and subscribe, and we will see you at the next episode.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 